who has a question? So what we usually do in this panel is we take your questions and we workshop them. We talk about games that you've played, issues that you've had that you might want to, uh, you know, put before the jury, and we'll tell you pretty much useless advice, but it'll be entertaining. Uh, so, any of you have any uh, uh, any stories you want to share? Yeah. You want to come get the axe? Yeah, no, you're. I'll, I'll I will bring the axe. Our host. I just, I just wanted the axe. <laughs> well done. Um, so, uh, like, let's let's introduce you. This is Mr. Dark Magic. Sorry, I'm Tracy's husband. And uh, you're, you, we both live in Somerville, Massachusetts. Yeah, I'm on the border, but yeah. But we never see each other. Yeah, it, Boston is funny like that. We live probably 300 yards from each other, and. Yeah, I've never seen each other outside. I have no idea that you actually live there. No, it's the 14th visibility. It's, oh, so it's, it's actually my spy identity. Yeah. Oh, okay. So um, what's your question? So, actually, I didn't even, I haven't run this by Tracy, so it's really getting this blind. If, one problem we run into a lot is uh, we have one guy who's been in our gaming group in the past who, I wouldn't say he's a rules lawyer, because that's sort of a common problem, but he is a guy who spends his free time reading all the rules, so he knows them really, really well. And he's not wrong about them. Like, he has a really good understanding of them and a working knowledge. But if you have a group that doesn't have that working knowledge and everyone in the group is comfortable with playing it a little looser and not being as absolutely rules-focused, <laughs> how do you keep the game fun for the guy who is totally into all the rules without having it evolve into rules lawyering? Oh, this is an easy one. Make him the living rule book. Don't like close the rule book. Everybody else pulls the rule book, and when the, the the call comes up, say, "What's that again? What do I roll? What dice?" Like scratch that itch. He's itchy for like rules mastery. I don't know. I mean, it's a game. You got to play right. by rules, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, otherwise, it's not a game. It's something else. So yeah, just like make that player give him like you know honor that role raise him up but, right. you know and, and and let him be that and and then uh, hopefully like if you can kind of scratch I don't know why Caleb are you itchy do you need yeah go for it <laughs> alright yeah no. that visual aids going into this is going to go great on the podcast <laughs> uh, just and, well hopefully then you can also um, like Maybe the dynamic will shift a little bit if kind of everybody's sitting quietly staring at him while he's going, uh, I, I don't know that rule. Right. And then the game master can make a call or something, or you can be like, well, we'll just we'll look it up later or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, not that it's especially relevant, but what system are we talking about here? Multiple, but generally uh, anything, well, anything based off of their tradition, so Pathfinder 3, 3.5, oh, yeah. or the D20 stuff. Because um, over a decade of studying it, he knows every in and out of D20. But this was in our 4E game, right, too? This was in our 4E game, and actually, but, well, that's a whole different difficulty that he kept trying to apply third edition rules. Well, edition. I, I mean, he got over that. What Luke said is sort of a test, too, isn't it? I mean, if you make him human wiki, right. and everyone starts looking at him, and that makes him uncomfortable, uh, he probably didn't want rules mastery. He probably wanted to use the rules to be oppositional, and then you just have a rules lawyer. Uh, if you turn him into human wiki and he's like, yay, uh, then problem solved and you're done. That's a fair point. So one of the things, too, that happened with him was that, uh, so I, my understanding, I haven't played a lot of 3.5 and stuff, was that you could do a lot more with, like, 40 has a lot more... Um, 
synergy between characters, uh, I think. Uh, and he, but so he wasn't quite getting that and kept trying to build his character to be super awesome and optimized, and it wasn't working. Hmm. Uh, so he didn't. I eventually had a conversation with him, just trying to explain like for you, sometimes can be about more about making the group more awesome rather than your individual character awesome. Mm-hmm. And then he started seeing it a little bit more, and then he liked that part too because then he's like, oh, if I take this, I'll make the whole group better, and yeah. and like it just redirected it more to a communal rather than an individualistic. I'll re-roll a bard. Um, yeah, but no, that's not. What I mean, it seems like he's a, he's a resource, and I mean these players, like obviously there's a there's kind of a, a range of, of player engagement with the rules, and you see this in every group, uh, right? You see some people are super engaged with the rules, some people are much less so. Some people I mean, that I've been playing with my group, some people that have helped me develop my games, I still have to tell them the rules every time they pick up the dice. Uh, but that's okay. Like that's that's their investment, that's their engagement. Um, but I think it's always a great resource when I find somebody in my group who uh, is really uh, engaged with the rules, and I, 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 I make them the human rule book, and then I try yeah. to, uh, like, I get to be the game master then, and I get to yeah. you know, move things along in other ways. Another thing, we had somebody like that uh, early on in our group, and then we started playing a story that really engaged him in a way that other things had not, and then he stopped worrying about the rules so much, and he did things that worked against him, because he, he kind of munched out a bit. Yeah. And he started doing things that worked against him because it was a much more interesting story. And he had just never played that way. Right. And so, you know, he kind of had to learn that. And now he's one of the best role players we have right. and does all kinds of crazy stuff in service of the story. But he needed that engagement. That was not a way he had played before. Yeah. Yeah, that's a fair point, right? You always want right. to speak to that player, too. Yeah. Any other? I'll take the axe. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Sean, the ringer talking axe is yours. All right. Proceed. Um, so, if you are playing a game that is led by the fiction and dovetails into the mechanics, let's say like Apocalypse Rule or Torchbearer, um, and <laughs> hold on, there we go, beautiful. Uh, and it is explicit. Is it good? <laughs> well, that's not you judgy. You'll find out later. An axie? Well, he looked at it and he was like, oh, God. This is a waste of 2.5 megabytes on my phone. Um, Let me just delete it. Uh, (laughs) Thankfully. Okay, come on. Get to the question. We do the banter here. All right. uh, So if you have a game that specifically engages the narrative and then dovetails into the fiction and then back out again, um, and uh, you... but you're sort of, sort of describing the fiction and waiting for the mechanics to, um, to take effect, and you have people in the game that are specifically trying to sort of short-circuit that and jump directly into the mechanics. Like, I want to make it this role. So let's say you're, you're playing Torchbearer, as an example, and uh, someone says, I want to make a scout role to look for this. And you sort of say, well, uh, describe what you're doing. And they say, I'm uh, looking with my scout role. And you're like, okay, what, what does that look like in the game? Okay, well, I'm using my scout skill. And you're like, okay, so tell me what action you take. Like, there's a wall, and you look above it and below it. And you, uh, what is, so if, if there's a deliberate attempt to sort of short-circuit the fiction, yeah. any cues for helping they getting people like to engage back into it to say like it doesn't matter until you've actually described some action taking place in the game. Something that I've seen work for that is saying okay let's see this is a TV show what does this scene look like? Yeah, something that forces them to visualize it Yeah. to think about it in visuals instead of just in mechanics because you don't usually see people on TV making scout roles and so 
you know, give them something that takes the role out of it for them to kind of think about. We're always like, my character's played by this actor, just to to kind of make us visualize. Uh, you could try playing a system that encourages that type of role play mechanically and sort of like get them in the spirit of it before you try on something that like so like the first I, I've been role playing for four years I'm the hobby noob and the first game we played of D&D uh, one of the players said I use my phase shift attack I'm like oh what's that do it's like it does these numbers I'm like yeah but what's it look like and these just like look like I just dropped a dead raccoon on the table like <laughs> it does numbers Raccoon numbers drop. to other numbers yeah uh <laughs> And so, like, there was, and, the, and that person just wasn't used to playing like that. But then there's, like, systems like uh, Max Black Agents with, like, techno thriller monologue and these cherries where, like, describe how awesome your gun is. Like, describe how cool your car is in car terms. And you get mechanical bonuses for doing that sort of flavor text. Uh, or, like, Iron uh, Heroes has the stunt mechanic. Like, if you think of some really cool way to exploit the setting. Uh, the set piece that you're in, it gives you like a mechanical bonus. Uh, if, if the person's really struggling with it, you might try a system that gives them sort of a carrot at the end of the stick of coming up with that creative stuff, and then it will naturally make a better game because that's why people include those mechanics, and then it'll likely carry over into systems where it, it might be harder for that person to visualize what number is doing to other number. Allow me to disagree. I, I, um... I think systems that where you're, you, you have to describe to get the thing, uh, I think that kind of bloviating becomes pretty boring pretty fast, becomes pretty mechanical. Um, I, so when players are like doing the like, my skill thing, I just grab their character sheet and throw it off the table and say, look me in the eyes. Um, uh, I, um, it's a tough problem, right? You're, you're basically all... Um, a game is almost it's like a game's pretty much going to go in two directions. Basically, either you're going to like kind of settle onto the rules and just play the rules of the game, um, or you're going to like, especially in RPG, you're just going to shove them aside and have happy pretend time. Uh, so, right. So, obviously, we want like the, the ideal is some middle balance where we're kind of um, you know oscillating in and out of that those states. Uh, when you get like creatively tired, this is what that person is doing. That, that person is saying, like, I am creatively tired right now, so I am just saying, I don't do the thing. The, uh, the thing that I know the thing works sometimes, I want to do it. Uh, so, uh, recognizing that, and I think Amanda's point is good, like, reframing, backing out, saying, like, it's a TV show. Um, I also just think that we get. Uh, brain damage a little bit like we we like after we begin to acclimate to the rules we just want to like you know we want that like sweet sweet hit we just want to like grab that you know grab the electric socket there and just be like ha scout test um because i mean i saw it uh i've been running dungeons and dragons uh at my office i have been i have never seen such a response to dungeons and dragons even i think i have more players in my office than i do at gen con uh i run three groups of uh six well, you work with a lot of nerds six to eight players <laughs> per group or five to eight players per group i do work with a lot of nerds um don't laugh at my nerdy coworkers. um this is one guy by the way i was just in that panel all right <laughs> <laughs> yes, Jack. Anyway, so what I, I uh, like, they, they're casting their little spells. You know, they're casting sleep or magic missile for the first time. And so I turn to them, what does it look like? And 
their responses are amazing. Uh, where you know, like the um, let's see, what was the uh, like the first magic missile was like rainbows. Like okay, the first sleep spell was like the, the scent of baking cookies, and all the goblins fall asleep, and it's like. Not really what I was expecting, but sure, you know, you just roll with it. Um, and uh, what I found is I just let those become touchstones where I will uh, reincorporate them as the game master and say, you know, you, uh, you cast a spell, and r- rather than even like, yeah, forcing them to, to tell me every time, because it's the same effect every time in, in that particular instance. I say, you know, and the goblins fall asleep, you know, dreaming of cookies or something like that. And, and I'll kind of bounce it back to them to try to keep the relationship fresh, uh, to, to let them know that I heard them, that, you know, I'm honoring their contribution, uh, you know, that it's a part of the world now. Um, and, uh, uh, like, yeah, I mean, I get in the same mode, too, where I just kind of get tired and I, or focused or, or excited about something, and I'll just slip right into the mechanical mode. So sometimes, yeah, a little like a little assist from the game master can I, help. I agree because like well, my first night here, we played a faint Tomb of Horrors game, and I was playing a strength-based character, and we were against this thing, and it's like you can help create an advantage, and I was like, okay, great, but I'm a strength character, and that's a magical thing skull that's hanging out there. Like, help me figure it out. Cause it's ten thirty, and I've been up since four a.m. Just like work with me on it, and also sometimes too, it's about. Um, if you're talking about newer players, they just may have they may not have read the same genre materials, so they may be out of their depth. Uh, so a lot of times, I find like doing things, I, doing things that are more tied to something they may have already done, like walk through the woods, might help them more than throw them into somewhere that's completely fantastical and they have no touchstones. Mm-hmm. It depends. It yeah. depends on the group, though. I find new players are actually better at describing things than yeah, yeah, like grognards. Yeah. As long as you don't tell them they're wrong, they're wrong for their description. <laughs> yeah, right, right. No, I did not shoot the cookies or the, the rainbow uh, or the purple glitter. That was another magic missile. Burn. Goblins are being immolated by purple glitter. Um, sure. Glitter bombing. Oh, uh, yeah, never shoot it down. No. Yeah, did not shoot it down. Just let it run. Who is next? Who wants the axe? Okay. <laughs> All right. Good. All right. So, have you ever done a raccoon drop before? No. Are you thinking about it now? No. Do you think it would be better, be better to freeze the raccoon first, <laughs> or just have it be limp? Uh, frozen. Mm. When you think about that, do you think about rocket raccoon? <laughs> no. Okay. Good. You're free, I think. Yeah. Proud of you. So, what's your question? <laughs> uh, well, so so basically, uh, I'm not actually running the campaign yet, but I'm about to start one. But it's pretty risky, like, the idea that I'm having, so I kind of want to see what your guys' thoughts on it. Basically, um, uh, a problem that I've run into is uh, if you're introducing people to a new world that they don't really know very well, uh, it's typically difficult to give them a lot of context, right? Like, you end up having to, like, write some sort of primer, or they end up having to read, like, a big chunk of stuff before they even get to the point where they're playing. Um, so I had this idea for a game that's just like this basic survival horror game that's on a desert island where the world is like weird and fantastical but I basically, and their characters know it but they don't as players um, and the, the idea that I basically had was trying to give them information that was contextually relevant when they needed it but otherwise just kind of like allowing the mystery of like 
who are these people and, and what is in the world kind of be part of the game. Is that is that just a stupid idea? <laughs> That's basically what I'm wondering because it seems like the first reaction I ran it past another a friend of mine that James a lot of games is just like her first reaction was like that sounds incredibly frustrating like that sounds like we won't know what's going on but I was like well you know my my thinking as well was like okay so uh, the, you know the global war on terror doesn't affect how the fastest way to get from the, my, the interstate to my house you know. Like, if you get to a point where, like, you know, you get to the point where you're making a decision left or right, the entire context of the whole world, generally speaking, doesn't really enter into that unless it is specifically yeah. relevant at that time. Like, this this area is mined. Like, why? You know, then it's relevant. So your but, question might not be about, the real thing that might not be whether this is a stupid idea, but whether it's a good idea, because ideas can be both stupid and good. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a fair point. Once you grab this one. Actually, I want a clarification. So, the way that you described it to me, it sounded like you were purposefully keeping the players in the dark so that they would have to get these sort of surprise things as they go, yeah. which sounds frustrating. Okay. However, if what you're doing is, you know what, you don't need to know everything right now, you don't need to do your homework, you don't need to memorize, there will be no test, then they'll just sort of discover it as they go, that sounds more inviting to me as someone who doesn't tend to hold all those details in my head, even if I have read the primer. So I think if if it's not knowledge that you hold captive to surprise them later, and isn't that fantastic and aren't you shocked? Right. But, like, yeah, I know how this works. You know what? We will experience it as we go, and I'll tell you what you need to know when you get there. That might be a whole lot more comforting and less frustrating to them. Okay. So, like, I mean, I guess how would that, like, in, in your mind, how would that play out? Like, what would the difference between those two things be? Like, I mean, like, like, what actions would I take that would differentiate between those two? Uh, do you have, do you know the knowledge of the setting and you're just controlling the release of it? Like, you're not giving them an exposition dump at the front? Or are you keeping the setting intentionally vague and try, in the hopes of coming up with it in well, play? Yeah, so a little, a little bit of... Both. Okay. Right? I mean, I have some general ideas. Um, that, I mean, I guess just generally speaking, like the idea being that there was like sort of a cataclysmic magic war. Yeah. Right. Um, so there's a bunch of weird shit going on in the world, uh, but and it, it did sort of influence the like again like they crashed on a desert island sort of comparisons to Lost are obvious, but uh, they they kind of crashed on a desert island. Um, but they, I mean, that's the other reason for the desert island is because you. If you're lost on a desert island, there's very little about the outside world that necessitates your next steps because your next steps are food, fire, shelter, you know. Yeah. Um, and the mechanic, like the, the setting I was going to pick, or not setting, sorry, the um, engine I was going to pick was uh, World of Darkness because it's pretty good for survival war and the mechanics are pretty straightforward. Well, I think as far as the part of the setting you know. Uh, much like you said, just make sure it's not a gotcha moment. Right. Don't let them like come up with a plan and be like, "Ha ha, that's covered in space vampires with laser eyes. You're all dead." Like, don't do that. Uh, just be like, your character. Of course, your character would know this is covered in space vampires with laser yeah, eyes. Yeah. Uh, everyone knows that. Uh, uh, or and then for the things that you've left intentionally vague, I, I would use basic improv rules. Don't negate. Uh, so like the in, in the campaign, I just wrote. 
uh, the city is in is Kirby, and I'm like, Kirby's central planning office uh, uses the dangerous aesthetic of narrative convenience. Like, oh, yeah, like, oh, no, that's totally there. Yeah, like, the second they say something, they go, oh, yeah, yeah, the Federal Reserve's in that city. Why wouldn't it be? Yeah, no, that's the, you know, just just roll with it. So, like, in parts of the setting where you're willing to, like, make it collaboratively built, like, players latch on to that stuff. They, if, and if you can stay on your toes enough to, to cover it, be like... Yeah, I mean, Batman needs, Batman needs to swing from building to building, so no freeways in Kirby. Like, traffic, you know, that kind of stuff. So. Um, I think, also, just to zoom out a little bit, I think what you're, you're talking about a pretty classic RPG problem is basically how do you seed uh, world knowledge into the game, into the players, into the characters? Uh, how do you make it meaningful to the players? Um, uh, how do you keep it exciting, right? Like, so meaningful means they can make decisions based off of it, and they're interested in those decisions. Excited mean, means that they don't know everything and that they're going to be surprised by the results of those decisions. Uh, so there are two kind of paradigms, I think, that we've sussed out to date. Uh, one, of course, is metaplot. It is, you know, thump, read the book. <laughs> um, and the other is illusionism, uh, which is uh, where you're kind of making it up, like you're li- like watching for their verbal and nonverbal cues, uh, seeing what they're interested in, and, and making it up as you go along. Uh, they're both equally bad. Uh, they're both equal, equally hostile to creativity uh, in, in their way. Sorry for those of you who love metaplot or illusionism. Um, so, so, like, so there's a there's a, just a very dangerous line between collabor- collaboration on something and illusionism. Uh, so illusionism is, uh, you know, the players are like, oh, God, I hope there's not crocodiles over there. And you're like, fucking crocodiles. <laughs> That's not collaboration. Right? Yeah. The collaboration in a game means there's a mechanism for the players to input into the setting. Right? So that could be at the top of the game, you have a discussion with them and you say, this is the kind of game I want to run. What are you guys interested in on this desert island? Like, what, like, right, are they interested in, you know, like, zombie apocalypse stuff? Is it, are they actually interested in, in like, hardcore survivalism? Uh, you know, and you kind of have a little workshop discussion with them at the top. You take, a, and you, you tell them, like, I'm going to kind of pull out concepts from this and they're going to be part of the game. So then the players know that they've had some authorship. Uh, but they don't know when it's coming. They don't know how it's going to manifest. And you can say, like, I'll throw a surprise or two into that. Um, the rule like of darkness is not going to support that approach. Uh, yeah, 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 absolutely. Right, and of course. The rule of darkness is not going to support that approach for you. Probably not. So, because the rule of darkness does not have any mechanics in it without let the players put stuff in. The rule of darkness, you, the GM, are omnipotent, which might be part of your problem here. But it's also, it's a... That that basic exercise of like, of collaborative world building at the top, it yeah. can be bolted on. Like it's a it's a technique that is it can be added at the top of, of many games. Uh, I mean, my game wasn't originally designed for it, but we managed to retrofit it pretty easily. Uh, yeah, and I mean, I, I guess I'm I mean, I mean, yes. be throwing out more like so it would basically just be mortals. Um, but so, and this is this is your home group, right? Yeah. Well, a big part of this is like a trust issue, like, yeah. and I think you're probably fine if you've run things for them successfully and they come to your house every week. They got to be getting something out of it, like, like stuff that my GM pulls. If they pulled in a con game, I would like start getting worried really quickly. Like I wasted my ticket, but I'm just like, oh no, it's him. Yeah, no, it'll it'll pan out. I'll see where he goes with it. Like, because you know that's my friend, and I go over there because I get some enjoyment from seeing him. Like, so. One of the alternate techniques for this that I think Jack was kind of nosing in on that World of Darkness and many most traditional systems won't support is in-process collaboration. 
uh, right, any kind of where the player could spend a point to introduce a plot twist or uh, a, a setting element or the next or initiate the next scene. There are role playing games out there that do that. Roll the Darkness is one of them. That's another form of collaboration where again the players have uh, have authorship and decision making power. Yeah, because like uh, Spirit of the Century, I think there's a, a feat or something, I don't know what the word is, but that you can take that, you actually get to introduce new facts, because that's like what your character's about, uh, so that like, helps you author it. Uh, one thing I did, it's not built into D&D, but like I did a recolonization effort, the Great War's over, you're going to rebuild the city, and I just had them take people with them. They each got one person to bring with them, so that they automatically had uh, a touchstone to, to, as they started exploring the world, and those, pe- those people did their own adventuring stuff and could give information about the world too. Okay. Like I went out and was getting firewood and I saw this thing. Well, you know, with WAD, you have background traits that can support some of the front loading Right. Yeah. And, and actually, I think in the uh, in that Mirrors book, which is like like basically just an entire book of alternate rules, they actually do have a mechanic uh, about being able to reverse. Uh, like being able to add facts back into the scene. So, right, and, and just to go toward my longer point, right, you want to hit a place somewhere in the middle paradigm between metaplot and illusionism. Yeah. Uh, there's always going to be a little illusionism in a game. There's always going to be a little bit of metaplot. You just don't want either of them to kind of overwhelm. Uh, so you want to let your players know what the bounds of the world are. They want you want to let them know what their authority is in this game. Like, you know, is it completely solely character focused? You'll learn as you go. You know, that's fine, but it's hard. Um, so, uh, you just want to let them let them know what they're in for. Give them, you know, as much information as they need, almost minimal information, really, to, to get started. And then, like for me, the best process in any role playing game uh, is to learn as you go and explore as you go. Like it, we're always exploring these worlds, whether we're actually playing an exploration game or not. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I think that. If you do a little bit of your homework and then you come to your players and you're honest and upfront about this and say, like, this is what I want to do. It's a little bit of an experiment. We're going to kind of try some different like, rules for this. Where And you guys are going to get a little input. Uh, it might work. Uh, the, by the way, the, the first time you ask for player input, you might get blank stares. Yeah. Yeah. They, they might give you the, like, well, you're the game master. Yeah. And you might have to talk them into it. But it, it, you, they want to do it. It was actually a point on the follow-up to that. Got the X. It was <laughs> yeah. a follow-up to that point that has worked for us in the past. Um, actually, this was before we were gaming together. I had a GM once who opened up a game of D&D by, instead of a character creation session, we did movie night. And he showed us, like, three movies he was thinking of as flavor for that setting. And then afterwards, there was a quick discussion of, like, all right, what did you like? Yep. What did you hate? And the hate was the important part, because, like, all right, no robots, got it, cool, <laughs> understood. Um, and that was really useful, because we weren't under the impression that we were deciding which movie we're going to be playing. Like, nobody thought for a minute that, like, oh, we're going to roll up Blade Runner, got it. Um, so it removed the, 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 the fear that, like, or not fear, but it removed the challenge of, like, now I have to make my campaign setting lost, because that's the thing people are using as the touchstone in this case. Mm-hmm. But it gives that common language to sort of spur them to say, like, I totally like that. I think that would be a great thing in the game. Or, please, God, no smoke monster. Yep. You know, that kind of thing. And it, it's a common language that doesn't lock you into any narrative. Okay. This is one of my favorite things about the, the template for a fiasco playset. Yeah. The little movie night thing at the beginning. Yeah, it's exactly. Like super, super useful. It's yeah. so much easier to play after you watch Fargo. <laughs> uh, the, I had an experience kind of on both sides of that where... 
um, or actually a, a friend of mine, you know, was telling me about a collaborative world building session thing that they did, and blah blah blah. And one of the players is emphatic, no elves, right? And, and then, like midway through, <laughs> midway through the first session, like these badass elves ride into town and like lasso you and and start yelling at you, and the players like. Like the player is just miserable, right? Like so, like when a, when a, when those bounds are set at the beginning of the game, like like there's lots of ways you want to challenge your players. When the when a player says, "Please don't do this," that's not one of the boundaries that you you challenge or, or test. Um, but uh, uh, but I did a similar thing to what you're suggesting. Uh, we were running a um, a campaign in Heian era Japan, which is hard to research, but. Uh, Ron happened to be playing. Akira Kurosawa was Ron happened to be playing uh, in town that weekend. I brought all my friends in, bought them all tickets, sat them down, said, "All right, before we play our eight-hour session, we're going to watch this three-hour movie." Um, and it, it, it worked great. Like it's it, right. It's a great priming device. Comments, stories, trials, tribulations. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Rocket raccoon or squirrel ball? What? Yeah. You don't even know who squirrel ball is? I'm like, Get out! <laughs> no, really Jack, no! Oh, okay, okay, I guess no, we can't afford to sacrifice any audience. Alright. <laughs> <laughs> so who are you? Where are you from? I'm not I'm from here. Okay, what's your question for the This room? Um yes, I actually live in this room. That's oh well thank you for having us. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, did you do something about your neighbors? <laughs> um, for lack of a better term, we have varying levels of interest in homework in our yeah. gaming group. Yeah, homework. So, uh, and people have dealt with this before, but like, so some of them love things like, you know, picking character options between, or leveling up and getting stuff and picking things out and scoping through books to find things. Some of them don't. Uh, also things like, you know, kind of what you might call downtimes, like, so your characters are have some time out, are you going to do anything? Some of them will participate in that, some yep. of them don't want to. Yep. Uh, same way with, like, you know, kind of write-up and stuff like that. So very uh, large variance in what they, they do want to do. So we've tried different things, like, you know, you can reward some of those things, you can try to do them at the start of the game, but at the end of the day, you still have some... You know, variance in the players and it creates some tension. I'm just wondering if anybody has uh, things that have worked really well to handle that disparity between, you know, appetite for homework, essentially. Oh, man. And, and I know homework's a very, like, negative name for it, but I don't know. No, no, it, it's totally homework. It's not <laughs> we, we are the only people that play games with homework. So. Right. Uh. <laughs> no, sports fans do some pretty serious Oh, that's fair. Uh, fantasy three. sports fans. three fantasy football leagues. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's not half just... my group is, like, game designers and podcasters in the industry, and the other half, like, would run from a book if it was in a room. Like, like, uh, they absolutely hate reading. Like, we tried to play Armitage Files, the book where it's all about, like, going over handouts and stuff. And, like, there's Robin Laws wrote a little note in there. It's like, if characters don't like to read, this is the worst campaign from them. Just send them in first into every building to, like, pick off the cultists. So, uh, and that was what we did. We just had a bunch of, like, idiot goon. Like, well, I think one was literally working down at the docks. And we just like, go get him, Jeff. Like, and, and we're all back, like, reading you know, uh, horrible, blasphemous tomes. Uh, but RPGs are weird in that it's one of the few hobbies that the hobby is expected to teach itself. 
Like, uh, many people, when they first play an RPG, have not read the RPG book. And so the playing the game is how they learn to play the game. Whereas in, like, most board games, you don't just get out the pieces and figure it out. Like, there's a pamphlet that someone is reading. And so you kind of have to teach the game as you go along. Uh, I think um, from an education perspective, one of the worst things I see that give people bad flavors of games that they haven't done the homework for is when the GM dumps the game on them all at once. Like, and they get really kind of... So I think a good thing to do if you know your group is not doing homework and not reading the material is to not wipe out the entire game or anything like that, but write scenarios that heavily focus big mechanics in the game, one or two at a time. Maybe I need to clarify, because I'm, I'm not really talking as much about, like, homework of learning the system and the rules. Right. Okay. I'm talking about the yep. homework of, like, uh, picking stuff for your character. Yep. Uh, of, you know, decide, like, between games, if there's some downtime, like, what the character might, that kind of thing. Oh, okay. It's still more, like, focused on not learning the system homework, but homework that could be part of the, the system or, or type of way you're playing. Like, I hate leveling up. Okay. Yeah. Amanda, yeah. I mean, Tracy, do you guys have any questions? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do, actually. Uh, this creates more homework for you. I'm assuming you're the GM. I'm pretending okay. you're the GM. The GM must um, do some homework anyway. But it, like we have someone like that in our group, and what originally started happening was that uh, her husband and I would design her character for her, and she'd come in, and she never engaged with these characters because we had created them, we had put all the stuff on the sheet, and she just never managed to engage with them, no matter how much we tried to tie them into the plot, nothing. And so what we started doing was really limiting her choices but still letting her make them. So it's like, okay, here are two options. Which one sounds better to you? All right, do you want to do this or this? Um, how about if you do this? Or maybe you'd rather, like, just totally limiting it so that she doesn't have to Im- immerse herself in everything, but she still has input, and she had a lot more buy-in that way. But it meant we had to go through, figure out the couple of choices, then sit down with her and go through which one she wanted to do. But we got much more satisfactory results from it. Hearthstone does that. Uh, if you want to build a random deck, they will give you, like, they'll put, I think it's three cards, and you pick which of those three you want, and then you start building your deck. Because some people don't want to learn how all the cards work together. Uh, and it's kind of like magic drafting in a way. Like, you get your, you pick the best card of the bunch you have, and you keep moving on sort of thing. And I agree with that, because some people don't. Like, I, I have to admit, sometimes I don't want to <laughs> learn every, like, plus two that I might get if I pick this feat or that. Well, see, I don't do weapon. that, but I'll be the one who wrote five pages of backstory. Yeah, no, no. And then I'm like, well, why is no one engaging with my character? That's why I say, like, part of it is just, like, figuring out what it is they're getting out of the game and, and recording yeah. that and seeing sometimes people want to put in the backstory, sometimes people want to do uh, system mastery, and sometimes people are more about, like, Interacting with the story in some element. We had a player who kept a like leather-bound journal mm-hmm. that she would write in like every night about her character and stories about her character, and she would never show it to anyone. <laughs> it was it was it was it was like the the secret diary of her of her D and D character, and it was like you know it was like this thick and it was full. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, like when I first started playing, I didn't always necessarily want to at the table talk about what was going on with my character or role played out because I just started playing and I was afraid that it'd be silly. Uh, but I would write letters home and then share that with the DM and then we'd share it at the table. And so that could give insight into my character without it being like an onus on me to talk. 
Am so, I the only one who's had this problem with the with with the opposite problem with the with the player who the character has this rich, detailed inner life that the that the player is totally uncomfortable sharing with the rest of the table. No, no, well, I think I think we, lonely fun is, is totally yeah totally problem. Thing. Fun. She was like, "This is my secrets, and you're yeah. never gonna know." <laughs> Wait, I just can, before we go to lonely fun, which is a great thing to talk about, um, <laughs> we can all turn and just face the wall and talk about lonely fun. Uh, so, without calling you without calling you out on your system for this, uh, I, I think there's actually some like there, there's like harder, sadder advice is that some some RPGs just require more homework than others, and finding a game that is kind of meets the sweet spot that has a little bit of homework uh, but not all the homework uh, might be the the necessity for a group with like a really diverse taste. I mean, I, I have the luxury in that we are, keep designing and refining our games to. Um, embed the homework in the game so that homework is gameplay uh, and uh, you know and, and trying to re- reduce the other uh, you know the other not in play homework um, but it still exists um, and even that like can get kind of like you know crazy but but yeah we've done exactly that in our designs where we've like we've limited things where like when you get a choice you're going to pick between two things and you know it was really like you know cuz our earlier designs are when you get a choice we're going to hand you a 600 page book and you're going to enjoy it and that's not the case i mean it but, i mean cuz what you're talking about there is a classic like analysis paralysis right you just it, it, it's just it, it like unless you have, are a master of that book it's going to overwhelm your uh, capacity to make a decision uh, so right, we you know, we've been like lucky in a way. I mean, I don't know if designing your own game is lucky. It's dumb. Uh, we've been dumb and decided to fix this in design. But uh, yeah, it, it might be a, a process of finding a, a you know a few a handful of games that your group can kind of uh, rotate through that scratch the itches. I mean, Finding examples too sometimes can help. Like the Pathfinder archetypes also do some of that uh, decreasing choice because uh, you want to like I created a mountain winch and it's like you get to pick from these specific mm-hmm. uh, sets of feats or spells because that's very flavorful. But you might you would have had to look over five different books in order to get them all together. One other thing, um, finding out what it is that they get from it. Like I. Part of why I love role-playing is because I get to do something with my husband that is social and adult. And so I love leveling up because after everybody goes away from our house, we sit down and, you know, we look over my character sheet and decide what we're going to do. And oh, my God, I, that's adorable. It's <laughs> like doing the crossword puzzle on Sunday morning for gamers. Exactly. I love that. <laughs> and I love that time. And so if there's somebody, like, it doesn't necessarily need to be solitary or as a whole group. But, you know, if you can arrange for that, those people who don't really want to do the homework to work with someone who's kind of invested yeah. in their character, too, and then it's a social interaction, and it's, you know, if that's what they're getting from it, then that gives them, like, special social interaction that can make it more fun to do those things. Point out from the other side, like... <laughs> can I, can I hold the act? You didn't hear the rules. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I missed the rules. Can you only talk to the act? Yes. Or if okay. Otherwise, you get axed. Um, so the other side is like an alpha player. Uh, you see the same thing in cooperative board games where you have this like resist, have to have to resist this urge to be like, you should do this, you should do that, you should do that. Because I will know like every single player, if I'm playing the game, I will know every single person's character's character better than they do sometimes. Mm-hmm. If they're not engaged. I mean, if they are, great. But if they're not, I'll be like, no, 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 you should, you should. 
you have a better spell for that. You know, like like it kills me because I will know what like I will have done their homework. I'll send you oh, yes. cheat sheets. Like here's all the best options you can have for your level when you go up. You know, here's I'll have done that just because. Yeah. Um, and and so I think that there's like another itch scratches like if there is the players who like to do the homework that giving them a space to like putting them what I mentioned was grabbing players and they're like let's level up together in that same way like giving the people who are really excited about it um, a space because sometimes like they don't have enough like I love up my character what's next what else can I do like and they'll be upset if other people don't so I have to bite my nails a lot and um, and so if you give them space to the opposite side I think. That really, my my group is a fucking wolf pack, and we have you uh, <laughs> in, uh, in my group, and and that player, like you you know, well, why are you casting the spell? It's self evident. You should cast a spell for this reason. This is, and why you know you should light a torch and you should this is, and we just like hand him our character. Like, Go ahead, play my play my character. Go ahead, just do it. Why don't you play my character? Really, I didn't realize that you wanted to be a dwarf. You should play a dwarf and an elf. Um, so we're like, <laughs> but it, but what it does also it just it also like we're being obviously very sarcastic there. It's the same group where you're throwing character sheets on the floor. I, no, I only do that. I only do that at Gen Con. It's like Glengarry uh, Glen Ross at a gaming table. <laughs> wow, that's fine. Hobbies are closers, Caitlin. Uh, so uh, uh, A B C. <laughs> Uh, ABG, ABG. Um, um, we it actually increases the kind of ownership of the players. Like, because that guy gets so aggro and so like micromanaged, you were like, "I'll fucking play my own character. Get away!" Choosing this level power just because you don't want me to. Uh, I don't really do that, but um, it, it's interesting. Like that player in, in our group has definitely galvanized our ownership of, of our individual choices. Though we are playing a game with scope down homework. I think if we were playing a. I have played higher homework games with that player, and we don't play them anymore with him because we can't. It's too much to manage. Like he's too into my shit, um, and not in a fun way. Not, to be not in a back fun way. Anyway, uh, do you have a? You know, you raise the ticket. Somebody else had something they wanted to put in. Yes. Uh, I'm starting on a new campaign. Basically, they're going to have no items. Nothing. Basically, I'm trying to be. Are you A4? You're just going to start him in there? <laughs> it's a an AD dungeon. The Slave Lords, the one where you like wake up in a loincloth and you're like, mm-hmm. I've got a bone, I have to fight a character. <laughs> That's kind of sort of the way it's going to start, except they go through a portal and they're going to have nothing, including the loincloth. They have nothing. They are there, and there's a reason why that is, but I'm not going to get into that point. Basically, you just I'm want to see the characters naked. Yes. Okay. That's with, the, with, with the, uh, the characters I have, it's disturbing, so maybe I don't want to see it. The, the bigger issue is I, I want to kind of put a governor on how powerful their characters are and how powerful their equipment gets so they're not like way overpowered for the rest of the campaign, but I don't want to just kind of starve them of any powerful equipment or anything they can do either. I'm trying to find a middle ground. Any advice on that? Oh, yeah. Don't play a system that requires gear for people to balance out correctly. Yeah, that's one. Absolutely. Uh, reward cleverness. Like, I, I mean, if you're if they're starting with nothing, assumingly they're going to get things right. 
I mean, I mean, if you if you're starting Tabula Rasa like that, that's a good way to establish that this campaign is going to be about playing your characters and, and playing in character. Like, so if they do in character things that are intelligent and smart and make good story, give them a cookie, and by a cookie, I mean a sword. Uh, yeah, just like just like my, relatively minor choices build huge character investment. Like you were talking about limiting choices, but they still get way more into it because they pick B instead of A. Uh, incentivization is the same way. Like relatively minor incentives will still, in a game, drive people to do things. Like uh, I tried to get people to do homework from my Clues Phase campaign, so I'm like, post on the forums in your character, and I'll give you a res point. That's literally the difference between 51 and 52 on a skill sheet and by the end of the campaign everybody was like in character firewall chatting just because they did it once because they wanted the res point and then they liked it because why would you do it if the homework wasn't fun? I wondered where all those posts were coming from. Yeah. Yeah. And then I just like you get on XP per session for doing it. So like relatively minor incentivization like you get a knife like that can that can do that kind of stuff from psychological perspective. Any thoughts on this one? I don't know. My players made me not ever take all their equipment away. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Amanda, what do you think? Oh, I think we have to give the ass to him for a second. <laughs> no, 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 no. Come on. Wait. wait there's some good stuff here. There's some good stuff on this, this question. Um, I don't think we made you not do it. I just think that the third time all of our equipment went <laughs> But I before I even started as DM. Oh, no, that was Mike's game. That's right. Two Master Toads stole all of our equipment three times, and then we all rage quit on Mike's game. Yeah. We were just like, no, 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 we worked, we have equipment, we, we invested, we have jobs, I have to be up at 6.30. Why I lovingly picked that long sword. Why did you take it away? So wait, is this the beginning of a campaign? Or are you... Beginning and I already yeah. told oh, so you're not taking their... They, they haven't played... Yeah, don't take their stuff when they have their stuff because it doesn't matter how. Again, with the incentive, it doesn't matter how useless that stuff is. They will fight you and hate you for it. Like yeah. it was my burlap sack. Like especially if you're making them work for it. It's like ten times worse. Now, are you, are they are you, you going to give them any input into the stuff they do get? Yeah. Like, will they be able to like find? I don't know. Oh, here's a stash of weapons. Here are seven. There are five of you. Everybody pick one. Uh, so that they can like still have some of that investment because I think that investment feels important. Well, the, the way I got it set up right now is they're going to have to find a couple of things and hopefully, and I say hopefully, uh, I'm going to try to lead them to the first point and then then we can go from there. It's basically a city. So once they get to the city, they can you know go to town, have a blast, do whatever. Of course, they won't have hardly any equipment, so they'll have to find a way to get that. But that's, you know, the, the big issue is, you know, they need to kind of explore and kind of find, as what he said, clever ways around some of this stuff. Because they're not going to have anything to start with. They don't have anything. They have to start from scratch. But I've already told them this in the, uh, the beginning. And, again, there's a reason why that is. If they want to investigate that reason later, go to town. So you're, you're starting a, a game of uh, a fantasy game, yeah. a sci-fi game, fantasy game, fantasy game, fantasy. fantastical transportation, another realm, m- memories wiped. You know, no, not necessarily memories wiped. Their characters know who they are, and they, they know all that stuff. So, okay. They just don't have... They, so they're, they're outlanders from another world, but, yeah, but here, here for a purpose of great destiny... 
Uh, sure, if you want to call it that. <laughs> but they're here for purpose. Yeah, they're, they're they're for a purpose. Whether you know, give them everything they need. Start them at the first point. Don't. Why do you have to torture them? Uh, why why do you have to go through all, all that build up either? Like you you, you can uh, summarize the entire game in two sentences and say or, or you're here. You get this cache of things or whatever, or you or you're anointed with this position, or you know, you emerge with these things. Just give them the stuff that you want. Like you can you can much better. In fact, if you, you seem to be really set on controlling the kind of uh, items or equipment they have, you can be m- uh, much more controlling if you just give it to them. Uh, and, and don't worry about them out-clevering you and, like, thinking, like, oh, ball bearings. Are there ball bearings in this world? They want ball bearings. What are they going to do? And they're like, we're going to build a pipe bomb. And you're like, well, all right. Uh, if they could come up with it, hey, great. No, no. It's not important. Like, that's that's not the direction you want this thing to go in. Trust me. Like, give them, like, or if, you, or if you want them to come up with that, give them the ingredients for the pipe bomb and pack it into their stuff. Say, this was left here for a mysterious purpose. I don't know what it's for. And let, let them go for that. It... Um, giving your like, think think about all of the great fantasy literature that we read. Right, uh, the heroes are given the magic weapons at the beginning. That Gandalf doesn't like defeat Sauron and goes, "Ha, ah, Orcrist, finally." I've been, you know, hunting for you for three books. No, he finds Orcrist, uh, you know, in the the uh, troll den uh, at the beginning of the series. Uh, same thing. Sting. Sting is not a reward down the way. Sting is a tool that Bilbo uses uh, the, the whole way through. Uh, hand them the because the, what you're doing when you do this, you hand them it wrapped in this package. What they can't see is a rope and a noose to hang themselves. Um, it is like you're going to give them everything that they need to get into tons of trouble, uh, and it's just a, it, it, and you get them to the action so much faster. You don't have to take my advice. Um, you, well, I know you and, and if it's a trust issue, and I, I do think that it is probably smarter to, in media res, let's skip the shopping scene and go straight to the action. Uh, I, there's few things I find more funny than fancy random roll item tables. Like, yeah, give them stuff, but give them random crap. Like, you get a bag of rocks. You found Excalibur. Like, and then you're, and then you're out of it. Uh, and then you're, you're like, no one's going to accuse the like, oh, you're hampering us, you're hindering us. It's like, not me. It was the dice, which is a really stupid defense rhetorically, but still works every time. It's a stupid but good idea. Uh, it, it's a stupid but good idea. And I, I mean, my players have when you, when you find a stash of crap, and we start randomly rolling for what they find in the stash of crap. My players have laughed harder few times than than doing that. So like, yeah, that's another way to go about it if you want to. What so. system are you using? Uh, oh no. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Because like, I also have questions about, like, how are you, like, is it just about the equipment, and what about the magic users? And... Uh, I've got a way of, around the magic users to a degree, you know. It's part of the world setting that's what's hampering them to a degree. But uh, it's not completely, you know. They're, they're not completely defenseless, they're just hampered, you know. It's... Don't, you don't, that's okay. Well, we have five minutes left. We should go lightning round. Right, well, one, one, right. one fast thing on this. Um, my advice at this point would be to think about what it is you're really trying to do, why you're taking all of their stuff away, and see if that's actually the best way to accomplish what you're trying to do. Um, because if it does, if, if they don't have to go find out why they ended up in this way, then 
like if, if you really want to do that, then make that crucial to it as well. It needs to be really important that this is what happened to them, or maybe it would be easier to start them out with limited. I mean, there is a definitive reason why they would be in this position and why they are basically have nothing. Narratively, right. it's only interesting as an obstacle to overcome. Right. Exactly. But there are any number of obstacles they could overcome for the exact same emotional and narrative reward. Is basically. Okay, I think we're going to do one more, and then we're going to we're going to call this one. Anybody else got one? Thomas Covenant starts with the right. Where are you from? I'm Dan. I'm from Buffalo, New York. This AC is awesome. It feels like home. Have you seen <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy? I have. Really? I have. Guys. Am I the only person here who hasn't seen it? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. I'm still thinking about naming my baby Groot. Would that be weird? That would be awesome. But it would have been weird. Also, I'm a poor judge of that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so what's your question? All right, I think I know the answer to this one already. I just don't like the answer. I have a very large play group, 10 players. They don't all show up at once. Yeah. But it's still anywhere from four to eight, usually. Um, and some people are really heavy into the role play. Some people are really heavy into combat. I try to mix the two together as much as possible so it doesn't, so the game doesn't, you know, come to a screeching halt as soon as someone gets stabbed. But that doesn't always work. I have part of the play, part of the play group just stares when there's role play going on. They go like, I'm a heavy. I'm going to hide behind my character shield here and be like, I just hit things. I'm muscle. I can't talk. And then I have the players engaged in combat who are the, the players that do role play in combat. They're just like, I am a scientist. I can't shoot. Um... Other than deciding to split a huge playgroup into two manageable groups, mm -hmm. do you have any suggestions for mixing the two play styles? Uh, yeah, make them all play the same thing. Find a game. Set I, I, it's a close phase. I can do that. Make them all play. Make them all clones or whatever from the same crash or whatever. Like, make them all play the same thing. They're all with the same exact abilities, and then see where it goes. Just as a social experiment. Don't tell them you're doing a social experiment. They're <laughs> <laughs> already wary of you doing things like that. Yeah. Social well, experiments. <laughs> sometimes you've got to upload, and you don't always control what body you get downloaded into. And this, this actually. This dovetails a little bit with the gear question uh -huh. because Eclipse Phase players really hate it when you take their really fancy body away and dump them into a crappy one. But yeah. uh, I agree with the social experiment, but talking about films as, as uh, models, there are a few scenes in films, especially comedies, that I like more than when two or three characters are having a calm conversation and in the background you see someone having a fight to the death and it's quiet and you can't hear it. Like, if you can generate that scene, like, they have to talk for something vital for the scene and meanwhile, you know, Know, Timmy's fighting the dragon in the background. Like, like the disconnect between those two things always bring a lot of humor to the table when I do that. If someone's like calmly negotiating as everyone's like being eaten alive by orcs in the background, I think we need a point of information here. How many players do you have? I, it ranges from four to eight. I have a the, the number of players is ten. Um, fate actually handles this pretty well, doesn't it? Because we're, we're like uh, fighting and words and all have the same weight. Right. A, a conflict I, is a I, conflict I was, and you can well, use any, yeah. anything you want conversion. to be in conflict. Yeah, with the fake conversion I was thinking when that comes out take well, a look at And they can create like advantages and stuff too if they don't not want to be yeah. in the fighting. Right. Uh, and like in D&D &D, what I do is just create environmental er uh, areas in the setting so like if the people don't want to be actively fighting they could be like trying to figure out this uh, old technology or whatever you want to call it 
uh, that could give benefits to other uh, people in the setting. And yeah, there are lots of ways to be in conflict with that aren't necessarily combat. Yeah. And so, you know, playing up some of those and, and having different aspects to the battle. And okay. Yeah. All right. So uh, we're we're done for now. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks all for coming. Just to introduce the panelists, and some people came in late. I'm Jack Graham. I work for Post Human Studios on Clipspace. Casey Hernandez, Sarah Magnetic.com. Uh, Luke, I make games. That's Magneto. <laughs> Possibly Magneto. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Uh, I'm Galen. Uh, my stuff's at the Arc Dream booth. I'm Amanda Valentine, editor at large. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.